You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You bow with me in prayer. Our gracious Father, we we do thank you that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and that our sins have been nailed to the cross and that we bear them no more. We delight in that love and we thank you for it. We pray that you would again show us the depth of that love and your love for us in the pages of Scripture, that you would open our eyes to your word and cause our hearts to delight in how you have loved us and how you have shown that love for us in the cross of Christ and in bringing us into your family. We thank you that you have shown us such grace. And we pray now that you would open our hearts to delight in your word. In Christ's name, amen. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And when you, when you find your place there, we're going to read together verses 12 through 17. John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another." Everywhere the redeemed heart looks or redeemed eyes look, we see evidences of the love of God for us. We see them even, especially in the common, what we would call common graces that we have all experienced even as we have come here today. You woke up this morning in a warm bed, at least I hope you did, in a dry house without rain falling on your head. You enjoyed probably a hot cup of coffee before you came here or tea and a, and a full meal and then you drove here in a vehicle that brought you here and you have arrived here safely. And when you stepped outside this morning, you saw the, you got clean air and you saw the blue sky and the green grass and the sunshine and that is such a grace to enjoy that. And then to come here and to worship together and to fellowship together and to have friends that sit around you each and every Sunday and to pray together and to read scripture together and then to learn together as we read and study God's word together. All of those are graces. All of those are graces. And that's not even to mention the graces of salvation. When we're talking about the graces of salvation. Strictly speaking, in terms of God's elect, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us in Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. He adopted us as sons. He shed His blood so that we might have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We have been adopted into His family. He has made known to us the mysteries of the gospel and the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit of God indwells us and He has sealed us until the day of redemption. And we understand what the truth is, and we have the truth revealed to us. And in the pages of Scripture, He has made known to us His will. And the Bible that you hold in your lap, what a gift of grace that is, that God would give you His Word, that He would inspire it, that it would be inerrant and infallible, and that you would have a copy of it in your very hands to look at, your own very, your very own copy. And maybe even dozens of copies in your house and around your offices. All of those are expressions of God's grace. And then that we have a place to meet, and we meet in freedom and that we have a a building in which we can worship and fellowship together. All of those are graces that we enjoy. All of those are graces that are enjoyed, we understand, to varying degrees by varying people all over the planet. But 
the existence of those graces and those blessings and the enjoyment of those blessings, even though they are in varying degrees by different people, are all evidences of God's tremendous love for us. He has loved us. He has loved us and we see it in the physical blessings that we enjoy. His love is seen in the spiritual blessings that we enjoy. And His love is seen in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And that is what Jesus points to as the ultimate expression of His love for us in John chapter 15, verse 13, when He says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down His life for His friends. And we've been looking at the expressions of the love of God for us. We see in verse 12 that we are commanded to love one another just as Christ has loved us. In verse 17, the command is repeated, This I command you, that you love one another. And then between those two commands, those identical commands, sandwiched between those are all of the expressions of how God has loved us. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Well, how has Christ loved us? In what ways has God shown and demonstrated His infinite, perfect, and eternal love for us? And it boggles our minds that that we as sinners should be loved by God to that degree, that the love that the Father has for the Son and the love that the Son has for the Father, that inter-Trinitarian love, that is the love with which Christ has loved us, His people. A perfect love, an infinite love, and a sacrificial love. And that is the love that we are to demonstrate as we love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another. So what does that love look like? How is that love expressed? We looked at one expression of it. It is expressed in the death of Christ on the cross as He died for us. Now, in verse 13 of chapter 15, when Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends, he's not giving a platitude about friendship. Understand that. You see this tattooed on people or on bumper stickers, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And sometimes typically used as, well, what, this is the perfect expression of friendship. A bus is bearing down on somebody, and I demonstrate my friendship by jumping in front of the bus, pushing my friend across the curb, and I take the bus, and I get hit, I get wiped out, and I die so that my friend may live. Greater love has no one than this. This is real friendship. This is not a platitude about friendship. Jesus is not describing what makes a real friend. You know what he is describing? He is describing what real love is. And his love is demonstrated not just that he died so that they might live further on this earth. Real love is expressed in that he died as a substitute to bear the wrath of the Father on behalf of those for whom he died. That his death was a vicarious, voluntary, substitutionary atonement where the price of sin was actually paid and the salvation of all who would believe upon Him was secured everlastingly. That is love. Not just that He would die so that others might continue to live on this world, but that He, an innocent man, would die the death of a criminal so as to bear the wrath and save from that same wrath all those in whose place He died. That is love. That is the type of love that is the ultimate expression of love. Now there are some other expressions of love in this passage, and we're looking now at, again, those verses between verse 12 and verse 17. We looked at the expression of love, the death of Christ on the cross last week in verse 13, and now we are looking at two other expressions of love, namely that He calls us friends and that He chose us. Those are the two expressions of God's love that we're going to be looking at today, that He calls us friends and that He chose us. In verse 14, We see it at the end of verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So he calls us friends, and that is an expression of his love for us. This is somewhat of a striking or odd thing that he should call them friends. It doesn't seem odd 
at first glance because you say, well, they left all, they followed him, they spent three years teaching with him and eating meals with him and hanging out around him and hearing him and relating and having conversations. Of course, after three years, you would think that he would call them friends, right? But it's a bit striking that he would call them friends because that is not typically how you would describe the relationship that would exist between a rabbi and his students. They called him master. They called him rabbi, teacher. You can be somebody's student without being their friend. Do you understand that? Have you gone to college? you gone to school? You understand you can be somebody's student without being their friend. But when the professor calls you his friend, that's something different. Something different than they would have expected. They had referred to him as Rabboni, as teacher. And they were really, and it was right for them to do that. And so that's how they should have viewed him. And that was an appropriate way of viewing him. And for him to refer to them as disciples, which that's what disciple means as a student or a learner, for him to call them disciples or students of him, that doesn't strike us as odd. But even beyond that, they called him master, implying that they understood that their role was one of a slave, a doulos, the lowest form of slave, that they had no rights. And they called him Lord, they called him Master, and Jesus on more than one occasion said, you are right when you call me this, for so I am your Master. He is the Lord, he is their King, he is their Master, but for the King to call you his friend, it's one thing to be a servant of the King, it's another thing to be a friend of the King, right? Do you understand the difference? So for him to call them friends, that was that was odd, especially given their relationship to him as their Master, as their teacher, and as their Master or their, their King, that he should call them friends. Uh, there is a high honor that is being described here, a high honor. And, and by the way, it's not just an honor that was reserved for the disciples. It is the same honor that you and I enjoy. If we are in Christ, we are friends of Christ, not just the 11 that he would call friends. You see, the salvation that they have received, we have also received. The faith that was given to them is also given to us. The relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith is identical to the relationship that the apostles had with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Does that mean that we're all apostles? Or that we're all called apostles? No, it doesn't mean that. We're not all apostles, but we are all his friends because he is, we are related to him as a friend, as our brother, and yet, and yet as our master. There's a high honor here in being called friends, and William Barclay describes this in his commentary in the Gospel of John. Barclay writes this, This phrase is lit up by a custom practiced at the courts both of the Roman emperors and the kings in the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the Friends of the King or friends of the emperor. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. He talked to them before he talked to his generals, his rulers, and his statesmen. The friends of the king were those who had the closest and most intimate connection with him. End quote. That describes our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our friend. It describes the most intimate and closest possible connection. Is he our master, our our sovereign, our ruler, he is. Are we his slaves? Yes, we are. But we are also his friends, that he would condescend to call us friends. What what an honor that is. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on John, says this, This is indeed a glorious privilege to know Christ, to serve Christ, to follow him, obey Christ, work in Christ's vineyard, fight Christ's battles. All this is no small matter. But for sinful men and women like ourselves to be called friends of Christ is something that our weak minds can hardly grasp and take in. The King of kings and the Lord of lords not only pities and saves all them that believe in him, but actually calls them his friends. What a high honor that is. Sometimes we hear that phrase, "Friends of uh, uh, Christ is the friend of sinners. Have you ever heard that used? Christ is the friend of sinners. Is he a friend of sinners? Kind of depends on how you use that phrase, doesn't it? It's one of those phrases that it, it can be true depending on what you mean by it, and it can be false depending on what you mean by it. it. It is true in this sense that are we sinners and are we his friends? Yes, we are. 
So in that sense, he is the friend of sinners, that he has pitied and he has condescended and loved and saved wretches such as us. Yes, we are. We are the friend of Christ. And yes, he is, in that sense, the friend of sinners. But in another sense, it is completely inaccurate to describe him as the friend of sinners. Because typically that phrase, he is the friend of sinners, is used to imply that Jesus is okay with sin. In fact, it's, he, he liked to hang out with drunkards and prostitutes. And he liked to throw it down and put on a good party now and again. He was always hanging around the social outcasts and the religious outcasts. And so the more wicked and perverse a person was, the more Jesus liked to hang around with them. He was the friend of sinners. Sometimes that's how it's used. To suggest that Jesus would wink at sin. Or to suggest that Jesus would be more comfortable around the the profligate sinners than he would be around people who pursue holiness. If that's what you mean by friends of sinners, then you've got it entirely wrong. Jesus is not this friend of impenitent sinners. He is the friend of people who recognize that they're sinners and come to him for forgiveness because they are sinners, but he is no friend to the impenitent sinner. He is a foe to the impenitent sinner, for he will come back and he will tread out the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. And he will destroy those who do not obey the Gospels and send them to everlasting punishment and everlasting hell. Why? Because he is the friend of sinners? No, he is the foe of impenitent sinners. He is their enemy. Because the impenitent are enemies with God in their minds through wicked works, hostile to God and in rebellion to him. They will find in Christ a friend if they will lay down their arms and repent and turn from their sins and bow the knee before him. Then he is the friend of sinners. But on judgment day, impenitent sinners will not find a friend but a foe. So is he the friend of sinners? He is. Because we as sinners, as wretches, have been befriended by him and we have been been graced by him and called his friends. And that doesn't mean that we should not obey him. Look at verse 14. Though he calls us friends in verse 13, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So the fact that we are his friends does not mean that we are not obligated in any sense to obey him. He's not our buddy now. I mean, he is our buddy in a sense in that this describes the intimate closeness that exists between Christ and those who are his, but he's not our buddy in the sense that we are equals or peers or chums. And that now I just hang with him and I don't have to obey him or do anything. That he has, he has wiped out all these distinctions between the Lord Jesus and us. That is not the case. We are obligated to obey him. How do we know if we are his friends? His friends do what? They obey him. This is the mark of a genuine believer. Obedience. The one who does not obey him has no right to think of himself as a friend of Christ. Because the friends of the Lord Jesus obey him. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And he says in verse 15, I no longer call you slaves, but friends. He's not saying there that we are no longer related to him as slaves and that we no longer have an obligation to obey him as his slaves. How do I know that? Because all the way through this uh, upper room discourse on, on multiple occasions, he has reiterated the demand that we obey him, that we do what he has commanded of us. This is the mark of those who are rightly related to him. We give a lifestyle of obedience and we gladly do what the Lord has commanded us to do because though we have this privilege of being his friends, we also have this responsibility of behaving as slaves. So we behave as slaves, but we enjoy a relationship to him that is, is described in terms of being a friend. For instance, in John 14:15, speaking of how Jesus describes our, our need or responsibility to love him or to obey him, John 14:15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, he who is my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you heard is not mine, but the father's who sent me. 
John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What is the evidence that we are connected to the vine, that we abide in his love, and that we belong to him? It is our obedience. So by describing us as friends, this does not nullify the responsibility that we have to obey him. Even after this, the disciples thought of themselves as slaves of Christ. Paul described himself as a slave. Peter described himself as a slave. What was the disciples' view of themselves? That they were the lowest of the lowest of slaves. And that they had no rights and they were the property of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they had every responsibility and obligation to obey him in every detail. That is how they viewed themselves. In fact, salvation is often described in terms of obeying the faith, obeying the gospel, and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 6, when Luke describes the priests who become uh, saved, who are saved in, in large numbers, he describes them as becoming obedient to the faith. How did they know that they were saved? They were turning around and obeying the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, those who are punished everlastingly are described as those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in John 3, 36, do you remember what John says? He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will never see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is the mark of a genuine Christian. They yield and render to the Lord as their master and king unqualified obedience to him in every detail. So Jesus is not nullifying the uh, slave-master relationship that we enjoy with him, but he is saying that though we are slaves, he does not call us slaves, nor does he treat us as slaves. And that's the point of verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. He doesn't call us slaves. He doesn't refer to us. He doesn't... In one sense, it's wrong to say that he he thinks of us in terms of us being mere slaves. He doesn't. Are we his slaves? We are. But he doesn't treat us that way. In other words, he treats us as friends, though we are slaves. And what is the evidence that he treats us as friends? That he has made known to us what the master is doing. Look at the end of verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. The evidence that we are his friends is seen in the fact that He has revealed to us everything that the Father has made known to Him. Now, that doesn't mean every mystery and every detail of the universe. It is to say that all that the Father had given to Him to convey to those disciples and to teach them and to reveal to us, Christ has done this. Now, think of all of the things that you and I are privy to, all of the information that we are privy to. A slave had no right to expect that his master would ever explain to him the master's business. In that environment, here's how it would work. The slave, the master would say, do this, and the slave did it. The slave never said, why is that? I don't understand why you're asking me to do this. Let's reason together and see if I can come up with a better way of doing this than you, my master, have suggested. There was no interaction. There was no discussing how this was to be done or why it was to be done. The master never revealed to the slave what he was doing or why he wanted the slave to do it. You do it. You're commanded. And you yield obedience. It was the master's job to command. It was the slave's job and responsibility to obey the command without question. So a slave had no right to expect that his master would ever reveal to him his motives or his purposes or the why behind it or any details concerning the business. The slave only had one responsibility. Obey it without question. But think of what the Lord Jesus Christ has revealed to us. Think about what God has revealed to us. We, You and I understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus said to the disciples? To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Not to everybody. 
But to the friends of the Lord Jesus, we understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. We understand the mysteries of the spiritual realm. We understand and see, we understand things that exist that nobody can see, and the world denies their very existence. We understand that there are spiritual entities, demons and angels, and how they fell, and why they fell, and what they are doing, and their schemes. We understand the reality of the devil, and how uh, that there is this warfare going on in the heavenlies. You and I understand that. We understand not only the mysteries of the kingdom and the spiritual realm, we understand what the future holds. The future for the saved, the future for the unredeemed, the future of angels, the future of demons, the future of the nation of Israel, the future of this world, the future kingdom. We know where the kingdom will be established, how the kingdom will be established, who will establish the kingdom, who will rule over the kingdom, what the nature of that kingdom will be, how long that kingdom will last, what that kingdom will be like. We understand all of that. We understand all of the treasures of divine wisdom that are given to us in Scripture. All of the mind of God concerning life and living and finances and marriage and children and, and living in this life and growing in holiness. All of the treasure of divine wisdom has been given to you and I in this book. We understand all of that. And we understand the mysteries of the gospel. We understand what the gospel is and why the gospel is the way that it is and the nature of man and the nature of Christ and the nature of scripture, the nature of God, the nature of faith, the nature of repentance, spiritual gifts, the future of the church. We understand all of that. All of that has been revealed to us. And the point being that no mere slave would be privy to any of this, let alone all of this. And we've received all of this. He has made known to us everything, everything that concerns us. We, we know his purposes. We know his plans. We know his motives. We know that the end of all things is the summing up of all things in Christ Jesus. He has made known all of that to us. He does not treat us as slaves. He treats us as friends because he has brought us into his confidence. Now, when you view the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal friend, do you think that that would affect how you pray? Do you ever pray like that and think about that? I make that application because prayer is mentioned in the very next verse at the end of chapter 16, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So there is application here and mention of prayer. But when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you come to ask the Father for something, do you think of it in terms of I am asking the Father of my best friend? I am asking the Father of my friend, and I am asking my friend for something. I think that that should revolutionize our prayer life. If we view the Lord Jesus Christ in that way, rather than thinking that he is begrudgingly given to us, and we're trying to pry something out of his hand, but to approach him as a friend. So his love is seen not only in the fact that he calls us friends, but that he treats us as friends, and in the fact that he chose us as friends. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. He chose us. Now, this is a statement of divine sovereignty in salvation concerning election. And there is in verse 16 an entire sermon, actually a whole series of sermons, and I kind of plotted them out in my mind as I was going through it, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give to you the high points, and here's why. We have already seen in the Gospel of John that, the sovereignty, that John is concerned with the sovereignty of God in salvation. Is John concerned with our salvation and the grace of God in salvation? He is. But all the way through the Gospel of John, we have seen John and Jesus declare the unqualified sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. We saw it in chapter 6, that all whom the Father has given to him will come to him, and he will cast none of them out, and he will raise all of them up. We saw the sovereignty of God there. We saw the sovereignty of God in chapter 10 when he describes the sheep and the security of the sheep, and the Father giving sheep to him, and his dying for and giving life to and securing those sheep. We saw the sovereignty of God there. And we're going to see it again in chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. 
as that theme of the Father giving to him a people is woven all the way through chapter 17. So we're not going to go into a long explanation of divine sovereignty, but I want to hit a couple of high points here, and we will return to it again in chapter 17. Notice the high points. First, that God is the active agent in this choosing. God is the active agent in choosing. All the way through Scripture, we see that it is God who has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That God is the one who elects. That God is the one who chooses. That God is the one who exercises His freedom in the salvation of sinners. God is not interested in us exercising our freedoms and us being the sovereigns over salvation. God is interested in glorifying Himself by freely choosing and freely loving and freely saving sinners. And so God Himself is the active agent and He is the one who does the choosing. Now this very language, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That very language is contrary to how uh, disciples typically picked their rabbis in, in that time. This was not how it was done. It wasn't the rabbi who picked his disciples at, at that period of time. It was the disciples who would choose the rabbis. In other words, you, you were tripping along through first century Judea in Jerusalem. You thought, you know what? I want to be a disciple of somebody. I think I want to learn something. So let me pick my rabbis. Well, this rabbi is really known for his conservative stand on this issue, and this rabbi is really known for his sort of liberal take on this one, and this rabbi, he's a good teacher. This one's a bit boring, but there are some financial benefits of belonging to this school. So you would look at all the different rabbis, all the different teachers that were available, and you would pick your school, and then you would pick your teacher. And then the disciple would attach himself to that rabbi. And the rabbis would not become invested in the student, and the rabbis would not consider the student to be their friend because a disciple might pick one rabbi and then switch over and pick another rabbi. You did not choose me, I chose you. That is completely opposite of how it was done. And that day, it was the disciples who would choose their master. And Jesus is saying, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It's also contrary to how we typically think of our salvation, is it not? It is. We heard the gospel. We listened to the gospel. We considered the gospel. We looked at the claims of Christ. We considered the pros and the cons. We believed. We made a decision. We turned from our sin. We believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We got saved. We made this decision. We have decided to follow Jesus. It's we, we, we all the way home. That's typical Armenian. In fact, that would be a great Armenian parable for salvation. We, we, we all the way home. It's I who have done this. I chose this. I decided. And I kept myself saved by staying in Christ. And if for one moment I almost fall out of that, then I'm going to fall away. It's the Armenian view of salvation. It's completely opposite to what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 6, you can't come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. You cannot. Not that you're not allowed to. You're not able to. Fallen man doesn't have that ability. We can't come to him. We can't choose him. That's why Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God is the active agent in that. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says that we were granted grace in Christ Jesus before all eternity. When did this choosing happen? When did he choose us? It was before we chose him. We couldn't choose him. That wouldn't have been what we would have done if left to ourselves. You say, but I, I experienced these things. I, I, I did reason that way. I did think that way. I did believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and I did turn from my sin. Exactly, you did all of that. But why did you do that? Not because you first loved Him, but because He first loved you and He chose you. Ultimately, we must always trace back our salvation to the grace of God and begin right there. Since salvation is of the Lord, and He is the first, and He is the last, He is the Alpha, He is the Omega, He is the beginning and the end, He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And if we trace it all the way back, we have to go back to before we were saved, before we heard the gospel, before we were even born, before there was an Adam spoke into existence, that is when he chose us. We did not choose him. He chose us. 
I hope you understand that the Arminian view of election is exactly the opposite of John 15, verse 16. Exactly the opposite. For the Arminian says, he chose us because he looked down through the corridors of time and saw that I would choose him. So God learned by looking forward what I would do. Problems with that. God learned looking forward what I would do, and then he chose, he saw that I would choose him, and he chose me on that basis. That is the Arminian view. That is the complete opposite of John 15, 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you. The Arminian says to Jesus, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Well, you chose me, but you only chose me because you saw that I would choose you before you chose me. And so your choice of me is really you patting me on the back and affirming what you think was a good idea, a good decision on my part. Jesus is no Arminian. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I might suggest to you that if your theology is the polar opposite of Jesus's, you might want to consider rethinking your theology on the subject of divine election. We always must trace it back to the sovereign and good grace of God, that we did not choose him. He chose us. He chose us. He didn't learn what we were doing and then choose us on that basis. By his good grace, we did not choose him, but he chose us. Now, the Arminian would say, hold on a second, though. I think that this verse, and I want to be fair to the Arminian, I think that on this verse, Jesus is not describing salvation. He is describing choosing to apostleship. That all he is describing is his choice of them to be apostles, not his choice of them unto salvation. Because the the, the driving factor is to maintain God's fairness. We've got to have a fair God. It wouldn't be fair for him to choose some and pass over others, even though others deserve hell. It wouldn't be fair of God to do that. So in order to maintain our hermeneutic of fairness, we have to have God being, not Snow White, but God being the fairest of them all. Since that is our standard, then it can't be choosing salvation that's being spoken of. It must be choosing them to apostleship. I would ask you this question. Do we believe that God is only sovereign in the dispensing of his spiritual gifts and not in salvation itself? And further, is that fair? Are you telling me that God has nothing to say whatsoever with who gets saved, but he only has something to say with who becomes an apostle and the distribution of spiritual gifts? I believe that God is sovereign in the distribution of spiritual gifts and in salvation. And if you're saying that God only chooses who's going to be an apostle and who's going to not be an apostle, I would contend that that's not very fair that Peter should be given the gift of apostleship and I'm left out? In fact, that only 12 men would be given the gift of apostleship and I would be left out? Or 13, because I believe Matthias was an actual apostle. Or that Peter would be given the gift of healing and that I should not be given the gift of healing? That's not very fair, is it? God's not after fairness. He's not after fairness. He's after righteousness. He's after holiness. He's after his glory. The concern of God in the distribution of salvation or the choosing for salvation and in the distribution of his spiritual gifts, the ultimate concern of God is not fairness. His ultimate concern is the glory of his own name, the glory of the triune God. And so it may not be fair by human standards. It's not. But that is not the standard by which we determine what God has done or what God is free to do. God is free to do whatever he wants to do. He's free to do whatever he wants to do. So I would suggest that that is not fair and that God is more than sovereign just over the distribution of the gifts and callings and would also make you to see and realize that this there's no limitations in this verse that describes specifically apostleship. You did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you. That that Even the wording seems to suggest that Jesus has choosing as being different than appointing. He is choosing them and he is appointing them. 
And I would suggest that this, the choosing here is, a, is an election or a choice, not only unto salvation, but also unto that calling of apostleship. The disciples did not choose to follow him. They did not choose to be apostles. They did not select him. He selected them. Now, Matthew or Peter or John might argue and say, no, no, we were in the boat. You said, come follow us, and we followed you. We obeyed you. We got out of the boat. We handed the nets to Dad, and we walked off after you, and we left country and family and and background and occupation and land and houses and all of that. We left all of our future to come and follow you. What do you mean you didn't choose? We didn't choose you. You chose us. Why would they do that? Because Christ had first chosen them. Chosen them to salvation, then he chose them to that gift, that calling, and that office of apostleship. So God is always the primary agent, the active agent in election. It is not us, and it is not God reacting to us. It is God determining to save a group of people for himself, for his own precious possession. You did not choose him. He chose you. You did not choose me, Jesus said. I chose you. A second thing, not only is God the active agent in salvation, but notice that this choosing and this election is always unto fruitfulness. It is always unto fruitfulness. Verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. The electing purposes of God in choosing a people for his own precious possession, that electing purpose and that electing act always results in what God intends. What does God intend? He intends for the fruitfulness of his people. And he is saying to the disciples, the fact that you are attached to the vine, the fact that you produce fruit, the fact that you are in me has nothing at all to do with your work, your wisdom, or your decision. It has everything to do with my grace. And the reason that we are in Christ and that we are secure in him has to do with his purpose and his calling and his work and not our own. And so this electing grace of God, which elects some to salvation, always has in mind that that person will be elected unto holiness. The person who is not holy in their conduct does not pursue holiness, does not walk with Christ, does not yield his life in obedience. That individual has no reason whatsoever to think or to suspect or to assume, presume, that they are in fact saved and elect unto salvation. The electing purposes of God always result in the fruitfulness of those whom he has elected. He chose us, Ephesians 1:4, in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. What was the goal of God's electing grace? A holy and blameless people. And those who are chosen, who are chosen unto this fruitfulness. He chose us and he has appointed us and his intention is that we would go and bear fruit and that that fruit would remain. And by the way, that is always a good thing to pray about any activity that we undertake for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that your fruit may abide and it may abide eternally. That should be our desire, that what I do is not it's not a fitful fruit, it's not temporary fruit, it's not a flash-in-the-pan fruit, but it is the type of thing that might abide eternally and it might remain. Now, did the apostles, did the, the fruit from their salvation and their appointment to apostleship, did it remain? Look around you. This is the fruit of those men's lives. The, the, the founded, a church built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we have today their word and the effects of their word and their ministries even today and right here. This is the fruit of their ministry. What we want and what we desire and what God has chosen us for is that we might bear fruit that will remain and it will be everlasting. It will be eternal fruit. And it will still be visible in heaven when we are there and when we have been there 10,000 years. They say, I need I need strength for that. I need effort for that. That is what the end of verse 16 is all about. That your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Do you need holiness? 
Do you need strength for that task? Do you need grace to love one another the way Christ has loved you? Do you need strength to fight against sin and to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Do you need grace to, to make sure of your own salvation, your own calling and election, to make it sure and to fight against the deeds of the flesh? Do you need grace for that? you need grace to serve one another and to love one another? Ask the Father. This is his point. Ask the one who is your friend, and he will gladly supply this. Why? Because he is gracious and loving. And does he desire that you would be fruitful? Yes, he does. So ask him. Ask him to make you fruitful. Ask him that your fruit may remain. Ask the one who is your friend. For he has chosen you to this end, that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we are so thankful for your electing and sovereign and gracious purposes. The mysteries of what Christ has done and how you have planned salvation and purposed salvation for us even before the world has began. Uh, Those mysteries cannot be fathomed or plumbed by any human mind. And we we err when we try to explain them or to reconcile them uh, from our limited vantage point and perspective. And so we pray that you would give us grace to simply embrace these truths, to rejoice in them, and to find our comfort and our security in them. We know that your purposes are established, that you rule in the heavens, you do according to your own purposes for the glory of your own name. And we pray that you would produce in us fruitfulness to that end, to the glory of our great triune God. We thank you in the name of Christ, who is our Savior and our King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.